I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Today we are in Psalm 139. Would you read this responsively with me? You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are beautiful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So this guy named David Wheeler was walking through the wilderness of online dating. Have any of, have any of you dated online? Yeah. Yeah, so he would meet somebody, and they would write back and forth, as you do, and they would both get really excited, and then they would finally meet up. 
But, but it seemed to David that the reality of the person that was before him never quite matched up with the person that he had hoped to meet behind the computer screen. And so this happens a number of times for David, both for him and sometimes for the women he meets. In fact, there was this one time in particular when he was so excited to meet this woman, she sounded like a dream come true online, and he drives up in his Dodge Stratus before her very large house, and he remembers seeing this woman hang her head out the window a little bit and see the car he was driving, and immediately this look of disappointment descends on her face. She still gets in the car with him, and they go to Chili's, and he pays for her salad, which he thinks is really nice, but it didn't seem to turn her heart towards David at all, and so David could tell the entire dinner that she was eager to get the date over with, and he pulled back in front of his very, this very large house that she lives in, and she practically runs out of his Dodge Stratus, and then he never sees her again. And David said that that incident was so, like, scarring that it made him want to create an entirely new online experience for dating. And so he created a website called Settle for Love. He wanted a site where people could share the good, the bad, and the ugly with themselves. So with each other, to to make themselves known from the beginning so that there would be many fewer surprises along the way as people began to get to know each other. And so on the site, people would post two profile pictures of themselves. The, the first picture is the one with the really good lighting, you know, where, where you're in your favorite outfit that shows off just your right features and you got your makeup on and the camera angle is up high, you know, that, to, to avoid that under chin. <laughs> and that perfectly picked Instagram filter that's just it's also not too fake, to, to make sure that people think that that's actually how pretty you look <laughs> with or without the filter. And then the second picture is the reality picture. It's the picture of you in your ratty pajamas while you're watching Netflix all day and a bag of Cheetos is laying on your belly. And the picture for David was actually from the top of his head, um, this top of his bald spot, because it's the thing he was most insecure about. And it wasn't just the physical things on this profile that you would show and bear. Um, The site asks you for your pros and cons of your personality. So pros, I'm intelligent and hardworking. And cons, I'm a bit controlling and and I have to be right about everything. Pro, uh, I'm a fantastic cook. Con, I I have a lazy eye and I'm antisocial with a questionable fashion sense. These are actual things people have posted on this site, not making this up. On the surface, it it doesn't seem like the premise of this website should be all that earth-shattering, right? Because people are people. They they have gifts and they have graces and they have things they feel good about and things that that they'd like to change about themselves, except... Except we live in a world where we work as hard as we can to mask those things about ourselves. Those things that we're insecure about, that that we're ashamed of. And David's story, David's sight settled for love and, and his search for love this way was deemed 
pretty extraordinary. He was featured on popular popular podcasts. He was interviewed on Good Morning America. David's website was newsworthy because the participants took the chance of unmasking themselves and of believing that by doing this, this is the crazy part, that in doing this, they would not be turned away or unwanted by bearing their selves, beautiful and the ugly. They believed that someone could see them for who they really were, unmasked, unhidden, fully seen, fully known, and still love them. Psalm 139, the psalm we read this morning is about this kind of unmasking, this kind of being seen. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You discern my thoughts from far away. You are acquainted with all my ways. You know my inward parts and you know my frame and my frame is not hidden from you, God. You see all my curves, all my imperfections. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any wicked way in me. This psalm is about unmasking. But the thing about this psalm it is in order to fully understand what it means for us, we first have to re-examine that initial story of unmasking. You know the story I'm talking about. That initial story of unmasking, it's right up front in Genesis. It's the first, the very first story of unmasking we find at the dawn of creation. And this story of unmasking, well, it does not go well. Unfortunately, the story of Adam and Eve has often been used as a hammer. It's been picked up and pounded over your head. Maybe you had this story pounded over your head as someone tried to tell you how terrible human beings are, how disobedient we are before God. Or perhaps someone has picked up this story like a hammer and pounded it over your, over your head to tell you how, how shady women are. Oh, those women who get us in trouble. How easily men like Adam can be deceived by us tempting Eve-like women. And as we've done this kind of hammer-pounding work, we, we've missed the heartbreaking beauty of this story. This story that the psalmist would have certainly had in mind in writing Psalm 139. The story of what happens when we see ourselves clearly and, and how we react in ways that are harmful to ourselves and to other people. And yet, the ways in which God continues to care for us and love us anyways. At the beginning of time, God creates the heavens and the earth, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the creepy crawly things on the land, and then God decides that there needs to be human beings made in God's own image that's going to tend to this land and creation. And so God creates Adam, and God shares this beautiful world with Adam and says, go, go and care for it, but there's only one boundary for you, just one. There's this tree in, in the middle of the garden. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you should not eat from this. It's not a food that, that you know how to digest. He, he needs someone that, that can help him, right? Adam needs a companion. And so, so God s sends him a companion. He needs someone who can care for the land with him, who can care for him. And so God creates Eve. And Adam and Eve, they, they open themselves up to one another. They reveal everything about themselves to each other. They reveal themselves entirely. They became one flesh, it says. And the story says that they were naked and they weren't afraid to be fully exposed to each other, fully laid bare. 
They were fully known, fully seen, fully uncovered, bald spots and all before each other and before God, and and they weren't afraid. And then this crafty snake slithers into this story. This was this creature created by God, just like all the others, and, and this crafty snake says to Eve, did God really say to you that you couldn't eat from that tree at the center of the garden? And Eve, who must have heard this story from Adam, she starts to do her own theological interpretation, which is something that we all do. She says, oh yeah, God said that. God said, don't eat from it, don't touch it, don't sniff it, don't pass by it on a Tuesday afternoon. And if you do, you will die. Eve takes God's command and she starts adding her own spin to it starts drawing the boundary line even more deeply. And this this crafty snake responds to her and says, you won't die. God's just territorial. God just doesn't want you to share the power and knowledge that God has. If you eat from this tree, you're going to see clearly. You're going to see what God sees. You're going to see good and you're going to see evil and you'll have wisdom and you'll be fine. What could be wrong with having a little bit more wisdom, Eve thought? What, what could be wrong with seeing more clearly, Eve thought? And so she, she took the fruit, which looked delicious, and she took a bite, and, and Adam was there, and Adam took a bite too, and immediately, immediately, when they turned from this boundary set by God, their eyes were opened, and they understood that they were naked, exposed, They saw clearly. Eve saw Adam's bald spot, and she noticed the way he snorted when he laughed awkwardly at his own jokes and how he was defensive about everything because it was his way of maintaining control. And Adam, Adam saw the skin under Eve's arm that kind of jiggled and flapped and, and waved as she moved and how critical she was of him every time he trimmed the trees in the garden and how she struggled with depression and self-worth and that was becoming so draining for him. And as they saw themselves in one another's eyes, as they realized how the other looked at them, saw them, how they looked to one another, they were embarrassed and they were afraid. And this relationship that had once been this wide open acceptance and fully seen, fully known, known in their innermost parts and loved and adored anyways, began to close in on itself. And they covered themselves with leaves and they walled themselves off from one another and slowly something in them began to die. And as they gazed at each other clearly for the first time, noticing both the good and the evil in one another, it dawned on them that this is also how they laid bare and naked before God. It dawned on them that this is how God could see them too. God saw it all broken and beautiful and maybe just broken. Maybe all God saw now when God looked at them was brokenness. So when they saw God coming, they hid in the trees. They, they didn't want to be seen. Where are you? God calls out. Like the psalmist echoes, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Where are you? God calls out. And Adam says, we heard you and we hid. 
we realize we were naked and, and we see ourselves now and we are afraid. And so we hid from you. And God said, did, did you eat from the tree? Knowing already the answer. But rather than saying we did and we're sorry, please forgive us, God, Adam says, that woman, that woman over there, the one you gave to me, that woman made me do it. Adam turns to that darkest place within us all, that place of blame, that place of pointing fingers at everyone else's brokenness to make us feel better about our own, pointing to how everyone else has screwed up so that we can feel superior and above all of that. Adam turns away from personal responsibility. It's not my fault, Adam says, it's yours. When God turns to Eve, we can almost hear God's voice. It's the voice that you heard from your parents growing up when you made a choice that could hurt you or hurt other people, when you made a choice that was going to lead to pain. God says, what have you done? And rather than saying, we didn't trust you, God, we didn't fully know God, we didn't fully trust, we're so sorry, God, Eve turns away from confession, away from God, and she moves to blame too. The snake that you created, the thing you created, God, it tricked me. I hardly knew what I was doing. The snake made me do it, God. And in this moment, with naked Eve and naked Adam, hiding from God, shielding themselves from God and each other and casting blame in every which way, sin entered the world Death entered the world. Like the psalmist echoes, surely the darkness has covered me. The light around me has become night. We don't read Psalm 139 and Genesis 1 in the midst of Lent so that we can have a history lesson on how bad we are and how long we've been that way. We don't hear these words, the story, so that, so that it can hit us over the head like a hammer. We read Psalm 139 in the midst of Lent so that we can be reminded of the death that comes from seeing our own and each other's nakedness. And instead of naming it, we choose to hide in shame. The death that comes when we turn away from God and each other to gain control and autonomy and protect our self-image. Lent. Lent is the season of looking that death in the face and becoming unafraid of it. In our Methodist funeral liturgy, there are these, these words that we call the words of grace. And it goes something like this. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. Even though they die, yet shall they live. There are things in us that need to die in order that we might find life in Jesus. And the two things we are killing this Lent together is our autonomy, that which keeps us bound and guarded and disconnected and distant from each other, that, that which keeps us protected and masked by individual faith and autonomy, no responsibility, no sharing, no vulnerability, no openness, just me and my Jesus. We're killing our autonomy. And the other thing we are dying to, the other thing we, and the other thing we are dying to this Lent, the, the other thing we are killing off is shame. Guilt, as one writer puts it, is feeling bad about our actions, while shame is feeling bad about who we are. Shame is the idea that there are things about you that if people knew them, they, w- they would choose not to connect with you anymore, choose, choose not to love you. And shame never seems satisfied to just live within us, right? 
it just kind of leaks out. Shame leads us to hide ourselves from God and one another. It turns us toward blame and it keeps us from being truly known by anyone, including God. And that is death for us. It is a heavy thing to keep things of your life hidden. It is a heavy thing for you to believe that God wants you. The church really just wants you to cover yourself up and, and turn away. That is heavy. And it's, it's not just important for us to let shame die within us. Because if we can't believe that we can stand before God naked and unafraid, we're going to have a very difficult time allowing that of anyone else, right? It's going to make us incredibly uncomfortable to have people open up and bear themselves if we ourselves are not ready to be opened up and laid bare. We are so in disbelief that God might love us despite all of our pros and cons that we become stingy and superstitious and judgmental of others because that's how we imagine God to be. But the healing to that The antidote to that is found at the beginning of our liturgy every Sunday throughout Lent. Did you hear it? Every week throughout Lent, we place confession up front. And there are two important things for you to notice about our confession. The first is that after we pray together, there is this pause. Did you notice it? Did you notice the pause? There's this pause for us to be aware and to lift up our silent confessions before God. To turn back to God and stop blaming other people. To stop blaming God and to stand before God with all of our pros and cons, naked and unafraid, just for a moment. But the second thing, that this moment of silence is meant to be short. Short enough so that you can't fully get out all the things you are ashamed of or sorry for. Your words are cut short by these words. Hear the good news. Hear the good news that Christ was broken for your brokenness. Hear the good news that you are forgiven and made whole in Jesus. Hear the good news, these words. Break into the silence. Break into our shame before God so that we can't marinate in it for too long. So that we might be reminded that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Shameful, broken, disconnected people. And that proves God's love toward us. While we were yet sinners... Not that Jesus died when we laid ourselves bare and begged for forgiveness. Did you hear it? While we were yet sinners. Not that Jesus died after we repented and God begrudgingly welcomed us back, but that Jesus died for us in the midst of the muck of our sin, arms wide open, Jesus on the cross laid himself bare, holy, vulnerable, holy, open, so that finally our shame and guardedness might die. This is what proves God's love toward us. This is what assures us, as the psalmist writes, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that even the darkness is not dark to you, God. The night is as bright as the day, for the darkness is as light to you. God has been seeking after us since the moment we hid in the darkness, calling us to come back into relationship with God, calling us to remember and recall our stories of faith and unfaith and vulnerability to share those stories with others, calling us into communities that beckon us to do that, free from our guardedness, free from our shame, free from our walling off each other, faith in the first person and not from the back row. That's what this season of Lent is all about. And Brett is going to share 
this morning a little bit about his faith and life with us. Would you come forward, Brett? Hi, everybody. I'm a big fan of the old saying, it's better to stay silent and be thought a fool than to open up your mouth and eliminate all doubt. But since I get up here and sing for you every week, I knew I was going to have to talk sooner or later. So here I am. And uh, since you know me as your worship leader, um, I'm going to talk about music. But I'll tell my story at the same time. I grew up in a small town in West Virginia. Um, We didn't have a grocery store for most of the time um, I was growing up. Uh, No stoplights. Um, you know, a very, uh, very small town. And my situation in terms of going to church was very much like Michelle just described. Um, you know, my mom and dad and brother and I, we just went to the uh, Methodist church by the railroad tracks every Sunday. And that was just part of life. Um, and that's how it was for all the way through my teenage years. And when I started getting into music in high school and learning how to play instruments. Um, I began to um, accompany our church pianist uh, on the bass guitar, and that was kind of around the time because she was also my piano teacher, and uh, maybe we realized that keyboards and pianos were not really where my talents should be placed, um, that uh, you know, the bass guitar seemed like a better fit, so I began accompanying her, and that was basically the first crossroads of the um, music and my faith. Um, I was coming into my own as an adult, I was coming into my own as a musician, and I was um, all throughout that also at the same time just learning what it was that I believed. Um, you know, I'd gone to church every Sunday, it was just part of life, but... Um, it was, it was then that I just felt like I, you know, had to really have that gut check of, do I believe, uh, all of these, these things that I've been taught in Sunday school? And, you know, fast forward, uh, through to college, um, you know, leaving the small town going to a big school and somehow in the sea of 25,000 people, uh, God led me to, um, uh, a campus ministry. And um, it was there that, you know, where I could have been led astray by countless of distractions and vices. Um, It was was that ministry that kept me grounded, and it was uh, where I found my people. I met lifelong friends there. I met Gina there. And um, it really just uh, shaped me as a person. But uh, what kept me coming back to that ministry was music. It was the band, um, my friends that I had met uh, out in, in the dorm rooms and had played music with there. They got involved and they convinced me to come. And, and so really it was the choral group and, and being part of the backing band um, that, that kept me going there. Um, and then I just sort of grew into the leadership uh, there. And after college, after I graduated, uh, then they became apartment hunting and getting roommates and uh, visiting Gina back at school and and then engagements and wedding planning and trying to find a house and more apartment hunting and this, that, and the other. And uh, just never found a church home uh, in Northern Virginia um, until we, you know, we bought our place and, um, 
you know, we, I should say we, we try a place here and there and go for a couple of weeks and then just be very wishy-washy about it. Um, but uh, after we'd tried that for a few years, we somehow stumbled onto Aldersgate. And um, really then again, it was what kept us coming back from Alder to Aldersgate. It was the music. It was uh, Andreas, the worship leader there, being gracious enough to uh, allow me to be part of the band. Uh, Gina sang with the group as well. And just that allowed us to sort of use our talents in a way we'd never been able to do in years. And um, and it made us uh, feel like we had a church home. And then uh, again, I... You know, fast forward another year or so, uh, and I got a call from Michelle um, saying that Kingston was looking for a, a new worship leader, and was I interested? And this was something that, uh, certainly a, a job that I had not sought. Uh, it was not something I felt qualified for by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, you know, it just didn't seem to, uh, it threw me for a loop. It just didn't make any sense that she'd be looking for me. Um, but then, Looking back on it now, it made all kinds of sense. It made perfect sense. Um, God had steered me using music all through my life. He'd um, informed my faith, but he put me where he wanted me to be. And um, so, of course, I had to accept. And, you know, I apologize for you as the congregation learning um, to um, deal with me and really uh, watching me learn how to do this job, uh, to be your worship leader. But uh, it's been a very exciting time uh, kind of building this church with you, um, and it's an awesome responsibility that I, that I don't take lightly at all. Um, so I'll just leave you with this. Um, I had, a, as you have heard, I've had a very traditional upbringing. I uh, didn't have any kind of existential crisis of faith or uh, questioned myself uh, in that way at all, but I still don't have all the answers. You know, I, I, I haven't truly read uh, the Bible from cover to cover. I don't always know what to say when I pray. Um, don't know the answers to uh, all these big, big questions, um, but I do have my faith, and, and I do, what I do have is uh, the privilege of singing these songs uh, to you and with you as we worship um, but I guess in all of this, I just know that I am where I belong. I, I know uh, I'm where God wants me to be. And um, I think that's because the one thing I have figured out how to do is to just listen to the music. Thank you. There is peace at the table of the Lord. 